This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Saturday, July 8th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The discovery of cocaine at the White House is raising serious national security concerns. Where does the investigation stand and what happens next? This is not an area that we should be joking about anything that shouldn't be there being found. I'm Kevin Cork. A time of peril and promise as global leaders prepare to gather at the upcoming NATO summit. When President Bush was trying to get Ukraine into NATO in 2008, if the Germans had said yes and the others had said yes, we would not have this war in Europe today. It would not be happening. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. As Secret Service investigates, Republicans in Congress, like Michael Waltz of Florida, say this is a major security issue. Sit aside this cocaine, a white powder that could have been anthrax or some other type of chemical or weapon of mass destruction gets that close to the heartbeat of our government. That is a massive security failure. The House Oversight Committee is now launching an investigation of its own. Let's go back. So it's Sunday afternoon when we know that this bag of cocaine was found. Fox News Washington-based correspondent Griff Jenkins was in the White House during last weekend's evacuation. Now, before the Secret Service and the White House sort of weighed in on the scant details that we have gotten, there were rumors that it was in the library. People wondered, what is that? Then we finally learned, well, it was in a highly trafficked, highly traveled area. And finally, we've gotten by the week's end some harder details that this bag of cocaine was found near the West Wing executive entrance that is highly traveled by VIP staff, people with high clearance, and VIP guests as well. But it's important just to note that this entrance is not one that uh, average Joe and Aunt Betty from Omaha would come to enter the White House on a White House tour that they signed up for. You might be a guest if you had a White House staffer giving you a personal VIP tour, but largely this is the entrance that you have everybody from secretaries, you know, DOD, DOJ, FBI coming in this entrance. And when you immediately enter, it is just off from the Situation Room where the NSC holds their meetings and there's a cubby area where this was purportedly found uh, that, that would, you know, have dignitaries and important people putting their electronic devices in. It's also just off from the Oval Office. Now, that's why you're having such an outcry from Republicans in particular saying, wait a minute, white powder substance, let alone cocaine, had it been, you know, something else, God forbid anthrax or something, it, it's getting through a security breach into what is essentially the heart of American government to be in this area. That's why we saw the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, James Comer, put out a letter demanding answers next week from the Secret Service, 
saying in the letter. This one particular line, Ryan, stands out to me. He says Congress funds White House security procedures and the Secret Service has a responsibility to maintain effective safety protocols. This incident and the eventual evacuation of staff now clearly raises concerns about the level of security maintained at the White House that also suggests to me that if we don't get answers, more concrete answers here come next week, we may see uh, an increase from the likes of people like Comer calling for even hearings. We also saw a letter coming from uh, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton demanding a number of answers to six questions. Among them, has there been a history of <coughs> excuse me, drugs being found in the White House? And what are the procedures to make sure this doesn't happen? So that's sort of where things stand now. One thing is certain, that is that, you know, while there have been a lot of jokes made, this is not an area that we should be joking about anything that shouldn't be there being found. Now, whether or not anyone is ultimately brought to justice over this or prosecuted or even identified, that really remains uh, in question. There have been a lot of jokes that have been made about this, but you have uh, Congressman uh, Michael Waltz come on our program this week, and, and he was extremely frustrated about the fact that you could have an illegal substance this close to the Situation Room in a section of the West Wing that's supposed to be extremely secure. And you're kind of hearing that outcry from a lot of different members about just how bad of a national security threat this is. You know, can we get an idea of just, you know, how much of a problem it is to have an illegal substance in a, in a place where we're reportedly saying it's near the Situation Room in a section of the West Wing? How much of a problem is that? Well, I think you can glean from what we saw. Remember, it was a holiday weekend, 4th of July weekend, Sunday afternoon, which, by the way, the president isn't at the White House. He's at Camp David. But if we look back now and look at the video that we've been playing all week on the channel, that evacuation was dead serious. They responded in a major way to evacuating the staff out of there because of where it is. You know, uh, I was reporting on Friday at the White House, even with my hard pass uh, as a member of the press and the media at the White House, I can't just go in and out of that entrance just to give you an idea of who can come and go. And that's why, you know, it would be a big deal if it were found on the streets in front of the White House, let alone in this, you know, nucleus, of you will, of what should be an impenetrable building because it is among the most, if not the most important building on planet Earth, right? The leader of the free world in the Oval Office just down the hallway. And I think that unless there are very satisfying answers given, particularly to the likes of Republicans like Congressman Michael Waltz and James Comer, and really it should be a bipartisan uh, concern among Democrats and Republicans to make sure that there are procedures in place that this should never, ever happen again. I think one thing, too, just on the messaging, you know, we didn't get, I mean, the White House is very tight-lipped on this thing. And then, you know, when, when we had, uh, during the middle of the week, uh, uh, Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates asked in an Air Force One gaggle, hey, Donald Trump says that uh, it, the cocaine belongs to the president and his son, Hunter. He said, well, you know, we've got the Hatch Act. We, we, we can't get into that sort of thing. We wouldn't want to. And I understand why he might take that tact. But yet, at the same time, on the messaging, we didn't hear the severity of the concern 
of the breach that this represents. And I think that's something that's worth highlighting. I mean, I'm not sure maybe if it's because they had other things that they want to highlight, like, you know, they rolling out, president rolling out a major health care announcement to lower prescription drug costs and whatever other pieces of agenda, like an upcoming trip to Europe they had. But at the end of the day, this is a deadly serious thing. I think you're going to see the cries for the procedures to harden the security to become even louder. And I think you're also going to see perhaps the White House and Democrats coming around to acknowledging how significant of a breach this was. This was also happening on a week where the president wanted to talk about Bidenomics in South Carolina and tout his economic agenda. But, you know, certainly the cocaine situation was overshadowing a lot of that. And yes, mentioning the Hatch Act and also the messaging that's here, you know, even with the details of where this was found, there's a lot of mixed messaging that we're getting in conflicting reports. You know, you mentioned first the library was the initial location, but then the press secretary came out this week and said that it was in a heavily traveled part of the West Wing and one that sees a lot of foot traffic but then we get sources saying and other outlets reporting that it was in that west near that uh, uh or i should say the, the cubby hole there later on in the week so certainly there's a lot of uh, mixed messaging here but also the hatch act being uh invoked in a situation like this what do you make of the mixed messaging that's been going on griff well i think the mixed messaging was a unfortunate situation and again you know if you go back to the beginning the suggestions of the library were not a direct factual statement from the secret service conveyed through the white house it wasn't until the corinne jean pierre in that first briefing sort of told us it was that high trafficked area but without any sort of specifics of what we've later learned and so the speculation grew out of the lack of answers and the lack of sort of a concrete pointed messaging. And, you know, at first you had people joking. It's like the library. Uh, was it, it's like the, that game clue you remember as a child. Was it Colonel Mustard uh, in, in the library with the candlestick? And so there were jokes being made and jokes on the campaign trail. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis making jokes about it as well. And then the adults in the room really stood up and said, hey, 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 this is a major, major breach. And that was an unfortunate situation. The evacuation was nothing but deadly serious. And the White House obviously takes it very serious, but they missed an opportunity, I think, to really drive home the point that all Americans should be concerned about this and that finding out why it ended up there, who brought it there, how it got in there, and how they're going to make sure it doesn't happen again, that that is a top concern of the White House among the agenda of the other things that they're trying to do. What kind of timeline are we looking at with Secret Service here? Based off what I'm seeing, we're expecting a possible conclusion to this maybe next week, but we're also seeing reports that they may never find the person who did this. Well, the Secret Service obviously operates on their own timeline, and no doubt this is an embarrassment. Make no mistake to them that something like this gets through. It wasn't as if people don't, you know, even if you're a VIP, you still got to come through some security measures. And so they are looking back, obviously, now to make sure no stone is not uh, looked at. And that's why we're hearing from Secret Service that they're reviewing access logs, cameras, doing fingerprinting and even DNA testing. But they also did the caveat that they are not entirely sure when they're going to give us this information. They didn't set a specific timeline, only alluding to hopefully we can get some more information 
uh, next week. And they point out that we may never know exactly who it was. I think to sort of give them a window here in case they're able, if they're, if they're not able to, to pinpoint it. But, you know, that's not going to stop the likes of, of lawmakers like uh, James Comer, who rightly points out that Congress does fund the Secret Service. And if they say we don't know who did it, well, that may not be good enough for them and unclear where that would go next. I would submit to you, it probably looks like the form of hearings. What is making it so hard for them to find the person who did this based off what we know? Great question. And I certainly can't answer it. And it'll be interesting to see if the Secret Service does answer specifically why it's so difficult to find out. Because you would think that to get within feet of the Oval Office and just the at the entrance of the Situation Room in the West Wing of the White House, that not a soul, not a mouse or anybody could get in there and, and, and not find out who it is, particularly if this individual took the cocaine out and put it in a cubby hole, which is what we think is the case, although the details yet need to be filled in. You know, I couldn't tell you why we don't know, but certainly the fact that we don't have a clear answer and, you know, here we are a week later, unable to piece a lot of huge major questions uh, together and connect any dots, that's troubling. Yeah, what's interesting to me about this is I asked uh, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre this week about a Gallup poll that says only 31 percent of Americans have confidence in the United States government. And then you have a situation like this where we're seeing an illegal substance make it all the way into the West Wing like this. How do you feel this could play not just with the public perception of the government and how it protects some of the most important places in the country, but also how it could play politically down the road? Well, let's start with politically down the road. We don't have to look down the road. We're already seeing this on the campaign trail with the GOP presidential hopefuls attacking it. And that's simply because it does continue to chip away at the public's fundamental uh, confidence and trust in our government institutions. And when you've got a bag of cocaine in the West Wing of the White House, it's almost adding insult to injury because Americans look at that and say, come on, how in the world does that happen? It suggests a lax attitude, a cavalier attitude towards something so serious as a Schedule II federal narcotic being in such a should-be secure area. And the larger point that, as you point out, Congressman Michael Waltz, this is a Green Beret who's fought in the most fierce wars uh, our nations have been in, understands security, worked in the George W. Bush White House, and certainly takes these things very, very serious. He says if this was anthrax or any other, you know, white powder that could threaten uh, a mass destruction issue, we really should be stopped cold in our tracks. And so I think politically it's going to be fodder on the campaign trail for GOP candidates for days, if not weeks and months to come. But as far as, you know, how it plays into eroding Americans' faith and trust in our government institutions, it's an understatement, Ryan, to say this doesn't help. And so we can move on to the president's trip to Europe. What kind of are we expecting as of right now with that? 
Well, so on Sunday, the president will head from Rehoboth to London. He'll meet with King Charles III in London and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And then from there, he'll go to the main piece of this trip, which, by the way, is his 14th international trip. And that is the NATO summit in Lithuania. And of course, he'll be there with uh, NATO's newest member, Finland. It comes on the anniversary of 500 days of the war in Ukraine. That will certainly be front and center. The administration approving cluster munitions now to be used in Ukraine after obviously the months and months and months of the U.S. weapons and military support building uh, in support of Ukraine. And so it's going to be very interesting. He'll cap uh, the trip off actually going to Finland in there and meet with Nordic leaders. We'll see what happens with that piece of the trip. But no doubt, this is uh, focused on the NATO summit, and it comes uh, on the anniversary of the long slog in Ukraine and exactly what to do with, by the way, questions of what, where do we stand with that recent failed coup with the Wagner Group leader, Prigozhin, who apparently was banished to Belarus, but now we believe maybe back in Russia. Unclear exactly where that stands. What is Putin doing about that? A lot of questions up in the answer on the international stage. We'll see what we can learn from this trip. All right, Griff, anything else we're missing here? I think really the the big takeaway is that the president heads off on this major NATO summit with so many questions at home wondering, you know, what's being done about security of the White House and what's being done with, uh, you know, the economy, because we keep hearing about how great Bidenomics is. We had an under-delivering jobs report on Friday, and, of course, Americans just paid more than they wanted to for hamburgers, chicken, and hot dogs on the grill. And so, obviously, this isn't something that the president is going to be able to talk about when he goes over to Lithuania to the NATO summit. And he missed that opportunity, as you mentioned, to drive home why Americans should have faith in the economy under his leadership and Bidenomics after just paying out of the nose for their Fourth of July barbecues. And we can also point out, too, that Congress is going to be getting back in session soon. And one of the pieces of legislation a bipartisan group of senators is looking at is a bill that would audit the, the Pentagon because they believe that there's a significant amount of wasteful spending in the Pentagon, especially when it comes to failed audits. So there's going to be a lot of questions about government efficiency over the next few weeks. That's for sure. And remember, look, we saw, I remember making trips over to Afghanistan during the invasion in 2003, my last one in 2016. And you hear a lot about mission creep. The uh, inspector generals for Afghanistan, scathing report after scathing report. In Iraq, scathing report after scathing report of mission creep and unaccounted for expenditures there. Uh, my thought is that you're going to see a f further continued congressional oversight of that and uh, you know the situation the war in Ukraine and our support of Ukrainian forces is going to be front and center when it comes to that and questions to the Pentagon. You know in your years of covering the White House how unique is this situation to compare to some of the others? The cocaine situation in the, all the years since I have been in Washington in the mid-90s I don't recall ever hearing this and by the way in Senator Tom Cotton's letter, one of the six pointed questions he asked is, has cocaine ever been 
discovered in the White House? And the answer uh, is we, we don't know. I can't remember a case. Everyone points to in 2014, Snoop Dogg uh, apparently smoking marijuana in there. And then if you go way back to the Carter administration, Willie Nelson smoking a joint on the roof of the White House. But, you know, those are, are moments that are, are perhaps, uh, you know, uh, figments of, of pop culture in the past. This one deadly serious, and I certainly can't remember a situation like this in the past. It'll be interesting to see when we finally know all of the details. I'm not sure that's going to be exactly anytime soon. Ryan, great reporting, Griff. Thank you as always. Thank you, sir. Hey, folks, it's your man Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know... You're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Rarely does an upcoming NATO summit truly capture the attention of the world community. After all, well-meaning platitudes about global cooperation hardly resonates beyond high-level diplomatic circles. But this year's summit comes amid a backdrop of war. You know, it's not often, thank goodness, um, it's not often that we have a war, uh, an active, fighting, large terrible war going on right in the NATO area of responsibility. Um, and this year we do. William Taylor is vice president at the U.S. Institute of Peace and former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And this year, NATO, both a supporter of the aggrieved party in that war, that is the victim of that aggression. Uh, so NATO um, uh, is doing, and NATO nations, let's be clear, it's NATO nations that are really supporting Ukraine. Um, uh, and and NATO as, a, as an institution uh, recognizes the threat that Russia poses to all NATO member nations. And so, yes, I think this is a, this is a very important uh, meeting of, uh, of NATO leaders. You bring a unique perspective to this, given your experience and your knowledge and your uh, your affection for the people of uh, Ukraine. I'm just curious. Uh, I, I'm certain that you know they have for quite some time wanted to become members of NATO, and yet 
there seems to be this sort of dance that the global community is playing uh, or, or sort of playing out as they continue to ask to join this hallowed group. Can you sort of walk the listener through what's happening with respect to Ukraine joining NATO? Why the holdup? And why is this so complicated? These are great questions. And you're right. It goes back a long time. Uh, so I was uh, I was serving um, in Ukraine um, in 2008. President Bush um, in 2008 um, recognized um, that Ukraine would be a real contributor to stability in Europe if Ukraine were in the alliance. Um, the leadership of Ukraine in 2008 wanted to be in the alliance. They wanted to join the alliance. Um, and this, Kevin, this is a, is a phenomenon that is worth exploring a bit. That is, um, after the Soviet Union disappeared, those nations that either were a part of the Soviet Union or were dominated by the Soviet Union, the Eastern European nations, the satellite nations, the Warsaw Pact nations, when they were suddenly free um, after 1991, when the Soviet Union disappeared, they, uh, they analyzed their situation. So Poland and Czechoslovakia at the time, now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, Romania, Bulgaria, these nations um, that had been dominated by the Soviet Union and some like Estonia, Latvia and, and Lithuania and Ukraine, um, who actually had been part of the Soviet Union, they recognized their vulnerability. They recognized the threat that Russia poses to its neighbors. Hmm. Russia and before it, the Soviet Union and before it, the Russian Empire was imperialistic in its in its essence, and it, it expanded and it oppressed and it colonized nations on its periphery. So those newly freed nations decided that the only way they could be secure was to apply to join NATO. They knew the Russians much better than we do, Kevin. They uh, they've been living beside or in uh, the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, for a long time, they know the threat that they're living next to, and they wanted to join NATO. So that forms the basis uh, of both the uh, nations applying to uh, join NATO successfully um, over the past three decades, um, as well as the current situation where Ukraine would like to make itself secure, would like to ensure its security by joining the alliance. You asked why it's complicated. It's complicated because the Russians don't want those nations previously or Ukraine now to have their own decision-making role. They don't, the Russians don't want to recognize Ukraine as a sovereign nation. Ukraine, as we know, has been a sovereign independent nation um, since 1991. For 32 years, it's been a sovereign, independent nation making its own decision, and it's making a decision now to apply to NATO to ensure its own security, um, and the Russians don't like that. And up until recently, there were nations in, in NATO who were willing to give 
a little bit of the benefit of the doubt to the Russians, as hard as that is to understand today. Um, but as we know, the Germans for a long time thought that they could get along with the Russians, buy gas from the Russians, work with the Russians. Um, and so they were, the Germans in particular, others as well, were hesitant to allow Ukraine uh, to join NATO. So back in 2008, when President Bush was trying to get Ukraine into the alliance in 2008, the Germans said no. And as you know, um, NATO is a consensus organization. If one country says no, then it's no. So that didn't happen then. Kevin, if it had ha happened, when President Bush was trying to get Ukraine into NATO in 2008, if the Germans had said yes and the others had said yes, we would not have this war in Europe today. It would not be happening. The Russians, the Soviets have never attacked a nation in NATO. And had, had the NATO accepted Ukraine in, the Russians would not have attacked Ukraine. You know, and that's one of the circumstances that you and I and those who sort of have had the opportunity to be at the rough draft or the first draft of history, we can now look back and say, you know what, if we knew then what we know now. Although I think you could make a credible argument that a lot of people did know then. And they point to whether it was Chancellor Cole or Chancellor Merkel. Um, they made decisions that they thought were in their own interest, and now it's obviously come back to haunt them. Uh, before I dive more into Ukraine specifically, I just want to sort of unpack something else about NATO. Finland uh, is a recent admittance. Um, I'm curious, is Sweden going to be next? And what about countries like, say, you know, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Herzegovina uh, Georgia even? I know that's a little bit more of a let's just say, controversial uh, possibility. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that uh, <clears throat> that Sweden will follow Finland, two traditionally, historically neutral nations. Um, Sweden and will follow Finland into the NATO alliance. As you said, uh, Finland has been admitted. Um, Sweden is very close. Uh, there's still some conversations with the Turks uh, about this, maybe the Hungarians. But I think uh, uh, I think the decision there is very close. And maybe by Vilnius, by next week, uh, those conversations can lead to an agreement. So I think they will they will join. Um, and uh, just to make that point again, Kevin, they made the same calculation, the, Sw the Swiss, the, the, the Swedes and the and the Finns made the same calculation that the East Europeans and the Baltic states uh, made in their turn, that is, they need to be secure from Russia. Uh, the Finns and the Swedes, when they saw the Russians invade Ukraine, they knew that they were vulnerable. And they knew that the only way they could be sure that they would not be invaded was to join the alliance. And so they have applied and have been accepted, Sweden very close. I think Georgia um, so, feels so that, that way again, too. Sorry, I think Georgia has a reason to feel that way as well. Jordan, Georgia definitely has the a way, and and you're exactly right to bring it up. So back in 2008, when I mentioned that Ukraine applied um, and was turned down uh, by NATO, uh, Georgia also applied and also was turned down. And now it turns out that since then. Uh, the Georgian government, probably not the Georgian people, but the Georgian government um, has 
evolved, has moved away from that calculation. Um, and they're a little bit, the Georgian government now is uh, uh, is a little closer, let's just say, to the Russians than it used to be. And they're less enthusiastic about joining NATO. Contrast that with the Ukrainians, whose enthusiasm, whose support for joining NATO has skyrocketed, as you would imagine, after they were invaded uh, February of, of 2022. Um, it even started when they were first invaded by the Russians in 2014. But since 2022, since last year, the big invasion, the support for joining NATO across all Ukrainians is at 89 percent. Kevin, there are nations in NATO right now whose support for NATO is less than 89 percent. I will tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I believe so. You. So the Ukrainians are there. The Georgians aren't. And you asked the question about some of the other Balkan states um, there. Some have applied. Some are interested. Um, and, and that will be that will be a story that plays out as well. Probably not between now and Vilnius right now and Vilnius. I think the NATO nations are looking at and I think there's an emerging consensus that an invitation from Vilnius, from the NATO summit in Vilnius to the Ukrainians could happen next week. Well, that would be really something to watch. Uh, just a couple more. And again, I certainly appreciate your time. I want you to do something that may be a little difficult, but I'm going to give you the challenge. Can you explain for the I don't know, the average American, the guy sitting in the Barca lounger in Pampa, Texas, who's working every day, his wife is working, they're managing their family and their finances. Can you help explain to me why it's in their interest that our government spend over $100 billion in Ukraine, why it is in their interest that our government um, continue to outsize in terms of percentages our funding for NATO? Can you help me walk through that uh, in brief, because this is the pushback I get, uh, Bill. People will say, it sounds good in theory, Kevin, but America has problems here at home, and that's not to say become isolationist. It's simply a recognition that we're making a significant investment. And sometimes I'm not so sure that the messaging is terribly clear what the value is to your average American. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's a perfectly good question for that Texan and uh, and his wife and kids uh, to ask. It's a perfectly good question, uh, and there's a there's a compelling answer, um, and it is this: we support NATO and we support Ukraine's fight against Russia for the same reason. That is, NATO defends us from Russia. NATO right now um, is supporting Ukraine because. Ukraine is fighting the Russians, not at their own choice. They didn't want mm -hmm. this war. The Russians invaded. Um, the Russians try to take over Ukraine in order to be on. If they did, if they if they took over Ukraine, they would be right on. They would be up and down NATO's border um, much more than they are right now. They would be a major threat. The Russians would be a major threat to the NATO alliance um, that protects us from the Russians. So. What we are providing to the Ukrainians um, is less than 5% of our defense budget. Our defense budget that uh, the Texans and, and uh, every other uh, state in the Union uh, supports, um, our defense budget goes to defend us against China, but it also, in the first instance, defends us against the Russians. The Russians are the real 
acute threat, the immediate threat uh, uh, for us, to us, to NATO, to our alliance, to our allies. NATO threatens, NATO defends us from that Russian threat. And we spend about 5% of our defense budget, our, 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 of our defense budget goes to support Ukraine while they are fighting the Russians for us. They're fighting for themselves, of course, uh, but by by pushing back, by defeating the Russians, the Ukrainians are defending us. And for five percent of our defense budget, that's a pretty that's a pretty good deal. We're not sending troops, so that Texan doesn't have to worry about his son or daughter going to fight um, uh, in Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainians are fighting the Russians for us. Um, they are defending Europe and they are defending the NATO alliance and they are defending us so that we, without even putting any soldiers at risk, with 5% of our defense budget, we are pushing back on and and so far the Ukrainians are defeating the Russians. So so that, I think, is the is the main thing. No, no American soldiers have to go. Um, a small investment, a small portion of our defense budget, um, and the Ukrainians are fighting amazingly well with our help um, to do this, and uh, and and that I think is the is the main reason. Couple more before I let you go. Um, again, getting back to the summit, uh, it's one thing to cover it; it's one thing to be in the room and to hear the public proclamations. I'm just curious, as someone who's been on the inside. Uh, if you can, uh, what's that like? What 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 happens that's a little bit different, maybe than what we see outwardly, uh, public facing? This is a great question, and it's very re- it's very relevant for the next week and a half uh, until until they uh, until they meet uh, next week. Um, because what's going on behind the scenes? Exactly your question um, is a debate, is a discussion, maybe even an argument. Uh, among the NATO members, the, the governments of the NATO member states are having a discussion, argument, trying to figure out what exactly they'd be willing to say, what exactly their heads of state and government, um, the NATO leaders, um, will say in their communique, in their final statement. Um, and the big issue um, is how to phrase the invitation to Ukraine to become a member by next year, for example. Um, mm-hmm. th- th- that debate, that discussion is going on right now. Um, it's going right now in Brussels uh, in, in NATO at NATO headquarters, probably going on in several NATO capitals. Uh, most NATO nations are in favor of inviting Ukraine in. Um, the Germans still aren't. Um, and if the United States were to look for unity, um, and bring the Germans and others around um, that that unity to invite Ukraine. That's the debate going on right now. Last one. This is so fun. I love this conversation because there's so much to learn here. And it's a rich conversation because it speaks not just to what's happening today, but it looks back at where we've come, especially over the last, say, 25 years. And it looks ahead to what the world might look like globally uh, particularly as NATO continues to expand and and its reach and obviously its impact, not just in Europe, but globally. Uh, my last question is, if you could put a nice bow on it, what should the average American sort of drive by, paying attention, 
look for? What's the big headline? What's the one thing they'll want to keep an eye on as we present the NATO summit next week to them so that they can really have something that they can hang on to? We should all be watching to see how the NATO summit can make Europe a safer place, uh, make mm-hmm. Europe and all the nations that are that are members of NATO, uh, including the United States and Canada, but all of all the European nations. How can that organization, the NATO organization, take steps to ensure European security? I mean, that's what NATO's for: is to make uh, Europe and the European mm-hmm. nations uh, secure in in their own homes. Um, and the way to do that is to be very clear that NATO will defend all of its members um, from threats posed to those members by the Russians. Um, and so the credibility of NATO um, to make the case that they will defend every inch uh, of NATO territory um, and they will want to make Europe even more secure by having the Ukrainians engaged in and indeed as members, um, that will be the big picture coming out of next week is how to make Europe more secure, more stable, more, more safer um, for all of us. Um, and that's that's the NATO responsibility. It is an exciting time. It is a perilous time, but it's certainly a time Uh, worth living, and we are absolutely thrilled to have the chance to chat with you and to learn from you. Ambassador Taylor, be well, and again, thank you so much. Kevin, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's It's been an honor. Thank you. That'll do it for today's episode of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at how recent Supreme Court rulings could impact the 2024 election and the effort on Capitol Hill to protect America's power grids. In the meantime, we thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Cork from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.